it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, December 6, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show from New York City today and for the rest of the week. I'm your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. Excited to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. If you can't listen live as we air, we have a podcast for that free of charge on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Here's the lineup. Tom Bevan coming up later this hour. Charles C.W. Cook in our last hour. We also have Dana Perino here. We also have our first guest here in a moment. We were also going to try to book Judge Janine, but I found out you are not allowed to have more than 40% of the five (laughs) on the show for national security reasons. But we begin today with Jesse Waters, co-host of the five, host of Jesse Waters Prime Time. You're right about that. When we were going to the Patriot Awards, we had Judge Janine, Jesse Waters, and Dana Perino on the same flight. And if that plane goes down... Goodbye, the five. You need a designated survivor, <laughs> and it can't just be Gutfeld. It can't. It'll stroke his ego too much if he knows he's the designated survivor. Right. All of a sudden, Gutfeld has two hours <laughs> at 5 p.m. and 11. Well, that's a very— Well, then I'd be glad I was dead. Very—wow. <laughs> it, is, it is a morbid start to the program here as we're talking about plane crashes and, and uh, Greg having two shows. But it's great to see you, Jesse. Thank and you. I great understand that there are congratulations in order for you and your family. Yes. Yeah, so my wife, Emma, is pregnant with a girl— so we have Jesse Jr., we have a girl on the way, and, you know, we have uh, twin 11-year-old girls, Sophie and Ellie. So the family's growing, my world is getting bigger, and we're having some difficulty picking names. So if you have any suggestions for great girl names, hmm. I'm all ears. Is it like any type of formula you want to go with, or are you open to I'm looking for name? classic American names. Okay. My wife is American. But she's got a little more French, Dutch, and German ancestry. So she's trying to get cute. Mm. And, and you just want strong, waspy Anglo. Just strong, classic American names. Okay. And she's getting a little frivolous. And we still have not settled on a name yet. <laughs> she is the one carrying the child. Exactly. So I'm willing to give her a little more leeway in the naming department yeah. since it's a girl. That's kind of you. And that's what I thought. <laughs> And so I believe we will settle on something. That's very exciting. When is she due? She's due in April. Oh, so like, you know, we're getting there. She's about halfway through. Very exciting. She's not even showing, which is really nice. Crucial question. Which is the better news this week, that you are going to become a dad again or that you and I don't have to think about soccer for four more years? (laughs) What was your position on U.S. men's soccer? Okay, so I got into this a little bit with Will Kane who has a very strong vantage point on this Is he a big soccer guy? Big soccer guy all of a sudden. All of a sudden? Well, he had a good reason why, because I guess his sons play at a high level, so he's learned to appreciate the sport. I I was trolling some of my soccer fan friends over the weekend, and a few of them were getting very angry with me. I was rooting for Team USA, of course. I wanted them to do as well as they could. I was not going to pretend to enjoy a 0-0 tie where nothing happens. My position is the same. 
It's torture. It's almost like they want you to not enjoy the game. And they want you to appreciate the goal more than it really deserves to be appreciated. Because if you watch an NFL game, my Eagles beat the Titans 35-10. A lot, a lot of touchdowns in that game. You're cheering, you're standing up, you're jumping up for joy like, you know, seven times. But You're watching like- soccer. You're watching a 0-0 tie and my soccer friends are like, you know what? England's oh, really good. It's a fabulous outcome. It's like, to me, just self-flagellation where it's like, oh, it's so miserable, but we're going to pretend to love it. They're like, oh, is the whole world wrong? And you're right. I'm like, yeah, on they, this one. They like being miserable. I think that's it. Those I think are soccer fans. They and, enjoy not enjoying the game. And as I said, soccer gets a showcase for me and for most of this country every four years. If USA makes it, which they didn't last time, they did this time. This was like one of our best teams ever. Okay. We got four games. Two ties, three total goals, and we're done. You're not going to hook me with that. Sorry. Like, I'm, I, if you like it and if you're sort of a quirky hobbyist and you like soccer, right. I'm not going to hate you for it. Don't try to tell me that it's good, though. So here are my observations and suggestions about how to improve the sport. Oh, good. For American audiences. Number one, you have to we have, expand- a, we have a huge listening base at FIFA. <laughs> so they're they are on pins and needles, please. The only way you get through to FIFA is to throw some money around. <laughs> That's now, right, so. which we don't really have. You so. expand the goal. Make the goal bigger so it's easier to score. Then your people are taking shots from midfield. That's exciting. You get rid of the flopping because that just pisses me off as an American. And we don't flop as Americans, not in our nature. So we're at a disadvantage when other teams are flopping like right. crazy. One of the only goals that we actually scored, the guy got kicked very hard where you don't want to get kicked. And even he was, like, kind of a man about it, even though he was apparently in horrible pain and went to the hospital. Yeah, he Willis read it. Yep. My other suggestion oh, is this. You take America's best track and field stars from the Olympics, and you give them a soccer ball. And you can do it every four years. Put a soccer ball in front of these guys. They run 4.240s. Just have them run up and down the field. And can we at least field some guys? I'm not saying you do steroids, but some of these guys on the Dutch team— I mean, these guys' muscles, they look Towering. like— Yeah. Why can't we have guys like that? It's like the Iceland team in Mighty Ducks 2. <laughs> just so much bigger I'm not physically. saying you cheat, but I'm just saying let's play by the same rules the rest of these teams. But the point that you made about these uh, track runners is a very good one because I made a similar point in one of my trolling conversations with a friend of mine who's a huge soccer fan. To me, watching soccer feels like you are watching— a bunch of guys working on their cardio, and that's about it. You're watching slow, good-looking white guys with great haircuts. Which I'm not opposed to, Jesse. You're probably not as opposed to as I am. But if you're trying to score goals, why don't we get the fastest guys yes. <laughs> from the NCAA? These guys that run track in the Olympics, it's, uh, it's us and the Jamaicans. Let's get some guys like that. Get some guys off the NFL teams. Throw them out there for a couple Saturdays every four years. Pay them a bunch of money. And let's smoke the rest of the world. Why do we have to lose like this? It's humiliating. Okay, so we've solved soccer. We can check the box here. Done. We're just a few minutes into the show. We've solved soccer. Jesse Waters, on a political topic I do want to ask you about. This is a little bit of breaking news today, getting some attention. Our colleague Peter Ducey, uh, speaking of a white gentleman with good hair, he asked a question of the president who's going to Arizona today for an event. Are yeah. you going to go to the border while you're there? Here's the answer from the president in cut 19. Why go to a border state and not visit the border? 
More important things going on. Points for accuracy, at least in his own mind. This is what he believes. He does not believe that the border crisis really matters or is important. And he's just flaunting it, basically. This tells me that for the rest of the Biden presidency, he's not going to try to fix problems. He's admitting that he really doesn't want to fix the problem. Because in order to fix the problem, you got to lay eyes on the problem. And if it's basically the same distance from where he's going in Arizona to the border as it is from D.C. to Delaware, you'd think he might be able to maybe hop, skip and a jump. You're down at the border. Lay your eyes on the situation. And then at least you don't have Corinne Jean-Pierre lying to us and telling us that he's been to the border. At least you can say I've been to the border and you don't have to go in Texas. You don't have to go through that rigmarole where everybody hates you and the governor hates you. You know, it's a purple state, Arizona. Go down, check it out and get out of there. And say you're going to work with the Republicans and Democrats to fix right. it. Put on the aviator glasses, nod, yeah. say a few words of concern, right. and then pretend to care. But he's not even pretending. Not even pretending. And that tells me that he's given up and that we're never going to get a solution. And that's just not what presidents are there for. you got to fix the problems. You can't make the problem worse. Very quickly, I saw a headline, Jesse, that apparently one of Elon Musk's companies is now under federal investigation. And just the cynic inside me wonders – is that a coincidence? So what's he under investigation for, experimenting on animals? Something like that. Right. So we looked into Fauci. I mean, he makes monkeys be waterboarded for these vaccines. And it's not pretty what he's doing. I probably shouldn't even be talking about it. So that's okay. But all of a sudden, you're going to get Elon on an animal rights beef? That sounds a little rinky-dink to yeah, me. A little politics, perhaps. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Jesse, I know you have not one but two shows to go prepare for, so we do appreciate your time. It's always good to see you. Anything big coming up tonight that we should be watching for? Well, we're going to be covering the border visit, and the Washington Post just suggested that Shark Week is racist. So we're going to be covering that. We have the guy who was working at the Wuhan lab who wrote a book that says we probably did fund this thing. And then we have Eric Schmidt, the AG in Missouri, who deposed Fauci, says he couldn't remember a thing over the last two years, said, I don't remember about 16 dozen times. So big show tonight at 7 o'clock. Now, the Shark Week revelation makes sense because the most famous shark is the great white shark. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Please steal it. On primetime tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel, Jesse Waters, my guest here in studio in New York, kicking off the Guy Benson Show. Jesse, thank you. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. From New York City, it's the Guy Benson Show. I just want to do a hodgepodge of items with you here in this segment before we get to our next guest in Tom Bevan. I see that the Dow is getting crushed right now, down 486 points at the moment after a really bad day yesterday. And I know that there are jitters about a coming recession. On the other hand, I did see the CEO of United Airlines, which happens to be my airline, saying that based on their data and travel patterns, he says... That word, recession, wouldn't be in his vocabulary if not for all the chatter about it. Now, there are some indicators, as Dagan McDowell shared with us last week, that a recession is a very real risk and not exactly a soft landing, to bring it back to the United metaphor. But I also think that there are at least some brighter glimmers as well. And 
the result is dissonance and some noise out there, which is why I love having people smarter on the economy than I am to come on this show and try to explain it to us and sort through it from time to time is what we do here on the program. That's issue number one. Issue number two in this segment, and I'm kind of like a dog with a bone on this, I recognize, but I'm going to keep pounding away. I saw an update last night from a still uncalled outstanding state assembly race in California, where I believe the Republicans are trying to make a gain in a very tight race. The GOP candidate is up by a few dozen votes. I want to say at the time, at least, it was 35 or 36 votes. He'd been up by like 34, and then there was another batch of votes that came in, and he netted one net vote to increase his lead, and people were joking, he's really pulling away. The point is, even though we talked about how the California 13th Congressional District race was finally called late on Friday, on December the 2nd, there are still uncalled races in California, and they are still counting, my understanding is, tens of thousands of ballots for the first time in that state. That's what I can't get over. These are not recounts in a close race. These are initial counts. This is not an undeclared victor because it's been very close and there's litigation and there's a recount happening and the lawsuits are pending and the campaigns are going before judges and so on and so forth. This is the first round of count in California, still underway nearly a full month after the election took place. And we talked about it with Josh Krasauer yesterday. If we move to a model in this country where California was a meaningful swing state for the presidential election, and this is their system of how they count votes, especially in a presidential year where the number, the sheer volume of votes is even greater, I mean, it could trigger an actual crisis in the timeline of getting a presidential election certified and a new president seated. And under various scenarios where a popular vote might have an impact on the Electoral College, and I mentioned that interstate compact idea that's been discussed by some, and it has some merits, but other big drawbacks, this being perhaps chief among them, where you're waiting for one of the most left-wing dysfunctional states in the country to count or find, if you're a cynic, as many votes as they need, Day after day, week after week, as the American people are waiting for the outcome of a national election? No, thank you. It's a very hard pass for me on that. So at some point, they will finish counting in California. I am hopeful that it will be this calendar year. I guess you never know. I'm not even completely joking about that. Imagine being a candidate in that race that I just mentioned. And all of a sudden, you know, you wake up and it's, what, four Tuesdays after the election and you still don't know if you've won or not because your state counts ballots that way. What a joke. We'll keep you posted. And our final topic in this segment, I think, might almost be worthy of a Fox News alert. Hillary Clinton is right about something. I know. 
She was on CNN. She was talking about Iran. And here is what she said in Cut 16. I would not be negotiating with Iran on anything right now, including the nuclear agreement. And I don't think we should look like we're seeking an agreement at a time when the people of Iran are standing up uh, to their oppressors. And we are giving them hope and heart. I agree. I don't often agree with that particular individual who is incessantly and irritatingly wrong on so many things, at least from my perspective. But good for her on this. When there's room for agreement across the aisle, even with a figure that I don't typically care for very much politically, I think it's good to highlight that. And she's also speaking up against a fixation within the foreign policy establishment within her party. Of course, this coming from a former secretary of state from the Obama years and even now the Biden years as well, where they are obsessed with a flawed nuclear deal with the Iranians. Flawed is being kind. A fatally flawed nuclear deal, a terrible one, uh, a terrible one under Obama and arguably reportedly a significantly worse one under discussion under Biden. And no matter what Iran is up to out there in the world, on the world stage, no matter how pernicious and insidious their conduct, lethal, deadly, etc., they just pressed forward because getting that piece of paper on a nuclear deal was their overwhelming focus no matter what. Even if they had to go, as they did, hat in hand to the Russians in the middle of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and negotiate through the Russians because the Iranians won't talk to us directly. That is how willing, how far some of these Democratic foreign policy folks are willing to debase themselves, really humiliate themselves in order to get an awful deal struck with this terrible regime. And Hillary Clinton at least has the clarity to say, you know what, as long as there are people, particularly women, standing up for their rights in that country, fighting against the regime, risking it all with great courage, and they're being arrested, beaten, detained, in some cases murdered and executed, now is not the time at all to be negotiating with that regime on anything, including this white whale obsession that they have. I think that's generally true, but especially these days, Hillary said it, and she's right. And when the woman's right, I will happily say so. I agree. The Guy Benson Show continues with Tom Bevan coming up next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, where our website, always the same, GuyBensonShow.com. Lots of content there, free podcast every day on demand. With us now is Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com. At Tom Bevan RCP on Twitter, I follow him there. Tom, good to have you back. 
Great to be with you. All right, let's talk about the Georgia runoff today. It's the Senate race, of course. We talked with Josh Krasauer yesterday a bit about it, the dynamics on the ground. He's hearing from the campaigns and the parties. Obviously, we've taken a look at the polling average and the numbers that you guys have been aggregating at RCP. Where do things stand on this runoff election day? Well, Warnock is clearly, uh, according to all the evidence that we have, I mean, including the polling data, we've got 10 polls that have been taken over the last, you know, three weeks or so. And and Warnock is leading in every single one of them, uh, anywhere from two to five points. So it's a 3.7 percent lead in in our average. And remember, eight weeks ago, as that race came to a close, Herschel Walker was leading by about a point and a half. And Warnock ended up outperforming those polls, those pre-election polls, and, and obviously not winning the race outright, but but beating Walker by about a point. So there's every reason to believe that uh, that Warnock heads into this, unless there is some, some massive polling error and it's not showing up in anyone's uh, pre-election numbers here. Uh, there's every reason to believe that Warnock is, is the heavy favorite heading into today. Um, and I, that jives with, you know, the things that I've heard and for the folks I've talked to, and it just seems like in general, the, the Democrats are more energized about this. They, you know, the difference between 51 and 49 means more to them than it does to Republicans at this point who, uh, you know, seem to be a little bit depressed and, and, not nearly as energized after what happened on November 8th. Well, because the Senate control is not in play for them, right? I mean, if, if Adam Laxalt doesn't narrowly, narrowly lose in Nevada and control of the Senate is up for grabs in Georgia, I think the dynamics on the ground might feel a little bit different. That being said, it's true that Warnock is ahead in the polling. I would definitely call him the favorite. However, there are paths to victory for Herschel Walker. I've heard, for example, from my friend Eric Erickson, that the Republican ground game, get out the vote effort, has been extremely robust, much more so in the runoff than it was in the general election. They are really focused on turning out their voters. And you'll have almost certainly a drop-off in participation today and in the early vote uh, compared to the general election, the regularly scheduled election. And it comes down to who actually shows up. So the polling might not be terribly far off, but if they've got the turnout model in sort of a quirky runoff scenario a little bit off, that is how Herschel Walker can win. And the polls are open for a number of hours still in Georgia. I know a lot of our listeners down there in Atlanta have voted already, but some of them are still going to vote. I think they should absolutely all vote. This is winnable for Walker, uh, even though some of the indicators point in the other direction. You just never know, Tom, until you know. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it and as you mentioned, I mean, these runoffs are runoffs and special elections are notoriously difficult to poll because they are low turnout affairs. And and there were, you know, different dynamics in play on November 8th than there are right now. So, again, we'll see. I mean, the interesting thing, too, is that you've got, you know, neither Biden nor Trump are are actively involved in these campaigns. Um, although you do have Brian Kemp, uh, you know, stumping for, for Herschel Walker, and he was obviously, uh, you know, successful in his reelection bid and and although he wasn't able to get Herschel Walker over the 50% mark on November 8th. But, 
uh, if he can convince if he can convince Republicans that they need to turn out for this uh, and turn out and vote for Walker. I mean, Republicans have been trying to sound the alarm and say, listen, the difference between 51 and 40, 51, 49 and 50, 50 is significant. And, and certainly Democrats feel that way. They won't have to rely on, uh, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. They'll have more control over the committees in terms of what they're able to do. Um, obviously, with the Republicans in control of the House, you know, there's going to be some some gridlock there between the two chambers. But but again, the difference between 5149 and 5050, there are some significant differences. And, and uh, so we'll see what happens. But uh, again, everything we have right now suggests that Warnock is is the uh, the favorite in this race right now. Yep. And we'll know later tonight, I will point out that neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump are popular in the state of Georgia. Look at the polling. They are both significantly underwater. The Republicans are tying Warnock relentlessly to Biden, which is correct. I mean, he's just a rubber stamp vote for Joe Biden, which is not really aligned with that state. However, the Democrats are constantly, especially in a lot of the advertisements, tying Herschel Walker to Donald Trump. And they're hoping that that will offset and then some the misgivings that voters, swing voters in particular, have about Biden and Warnock. And we'll see how it all turns out. All I can say for our listeners down there in Georgia, there's still a few hours to go. Vote and then we'll see what happens. I mean, this is a state that is closely divided. Brian Kemp won it by almost eight points for governor. Uh, Warnock. and, and, And by the way, not just that, Kemp. And the whole Republican ticket in statewide, state-level races, they swept. They swept every state-level, statewide race the Republicans did. They won 9 out of 14 House seats. They kept their grip on the state legislature. It was a very good night in Georgia for Republicans in every race except for the U.S. Senate race. And I'm sure there will be a lot of discussion about that when this is all said and done. But for now, it's not over, and it could go either way. I just want to underscore that as people are heading to the polls as we speak in the state of Georgia. Now, Tom, you were talking about the Real Clear Politics average of polling in that race. I mentioned yesterday on the air the RCP average nationally on the so-called generic congressional ballot in 2022. You guys, and it's obviously you guys are aggregating numbers, but the average right before the election that you guys put out was Republicans by two and a half, And it looks like now that things have shaken out, Republicans overperformed that very, very slightly, but within clearly the margin of error. I think it was 2.9 percentage points or three. So almost a bang on result for that polling average. What's your analysis of that? And do you agree? Because I made this point with Josh yesterday. If you had only given me this one little snapshot data point before the election telling me Republicans will outperform the RCP average on generic ballot, I would have bet the farm that we had at least something of a red wave coming our way as opposed to the little like pinkish splash, if that, that we ended up with in the House. Uh, It's just sort of interesting to see them win millions more votes than the Democrats did nationwide and not really translate that into a more significant victory in terms of seats won. Yeah, uh, totally agree. Um, and and this was a really odd election in in a bunch of different ways. To me, as you sort of dig through the 
the details of it, um, you know, the most interesting thing to me is why, and you mentioned Biden's job approval rate. I mean, by all the traditional metrics, all of the sort of fundamentals, if you looked at them, Biden's job approval rating was in the mid to low 40s in nationally and in all these swing states. You had inflation, which was the number one issue for voters, although in certain states, obviously, abortion played uh, a much bigger role uh, than, than even the pre-election polls suggested. If you looked at the right track, wrong direction number, if you looked at any of these metrics, uh, they all suggested that Republicans were going to do quite well. Um, now, obviously, there were some candidate issues that, that came to the fore. And that, to me, you know, when you look at the, the biggest surprise were, were independents. They, they did not function, did not vote the way that they have in the past five cycles. Um, you know, typically independents will vote with the out party, uh, in some cases in recent history by double digits voting for the, you know, voting for change this year, they voted for the status quo. They did not punish Joe Biden and the Democrats for, for any of the things, not for the economy, uh, you know, not, not for immigration, which was an issue in Arizona, for example, um, not for crime, uh, all of these things, uh, voters, independent voters in particular, and a lot of these races were real close. And I think independent voters made the difference. I've gone back and looked and tried to figure out, you know, there wasn't much evidence at all to suggest in pre-election polling that independents were going to do what they did on election day. And so that to me is suggests that, um, a, there were candidate quality issues that really, I think were perhaps, uh, understated, um, in some of the pre-election polling, you know, obviously Oz and Walker and some of these candidates, Masters had low favorable ratings, but you know, Fetterman's favorable ratings were not great either, and there was no suggestion that somehow that would translate to, uh, you know, the the four point four and a half point victory that he got in Pennsylvania um, when when none of the polls really showed that happening. So um, it was a combination of things, I think. Uh, and quite frankly, at the end of the day, you know, and you've probably talked about this in the past, in a lot of the states, Democrats just flat out, you know, out hustled, out organized, out strategized, I think, Republicans with the early vote. Um, and and unless and until Republicans figure out how to how to get in that game, um, they might be at a disadvantage here because all of those close uh, battleground states uh, you know, I think Democrats did a, a better job on the ground in terms of getting their voters to the polls. And, and obviously with independence on top of that, that made the difference. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Democrats did, I think, a very cynical but effective job at meddling in Republican primaries. That helped them uh, win some seats by encouraging the Republicans to nominate unelectable people, and they took advantage of that. And, yeah, I mean, Republicans can – fulminate against too much early voting and not liking the mail-in votes or whatever, uh, where Republicans have learned to play that game the way the Democrats do, including weirdly in California, Republicans did pretty well. Florida, a great example, huge red wave in that state where Republicans are still angry about it and telling their supporters, don't vote early, don't mail in your ballot. You're just seeding an advantage to Democrats in some of these places where in a close election it can make a difference. And then, of course, the independents who are willing to break decisively for guys like Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis and uh, Mike DeWine and Chris Sununu and others. But then some of these Senate races in particular, some House races that you've alluded to, uh, the opposite was the case and they will split their tickets. 
uh, in a way that we hadn't seen to that extent in a long time. And just one of the other interesting, I think, instructive educational quirks of the 2022 election. Uh, Since you mentioned, and this is the last point, Tom, Arizona, we saw that they just certified those election results, which were across the board pretty good for the Republicans in a lot of ways. But again, at the top of the ticket, not so good. You look at who the Republicans were running. I know that the gubernatorial nominee is still out there trying to pretend like she has some sort of path to winning, even though it's over and, and they certified the race. Um, you know, I just wonder if at some point patience starts to run out among Republican voters who might even love folks like Donald Trump or Carrie Lake, you know, if they're going to keep being told that things are rigged and, you know, things are stolen and they're going to be sort of misled about what was possible moving forward, then they see other Republicans doing very well, even in that same state, for example, in Arizona, you know, the penny, I hope, would drop at some point saying this is not the way forward. Well, I, I will say this. I mean, I, I certainly think to the extent when you talk about Donald Trump and his his unyielding desire to to relitigate 2020 and his most recent comments about suspending you know, the Constitution and whatnot, um, that that presents opportunities for for Republicans who who, you know, like Trump's policies, but maybe don't like his, some of the drama, you know, for, for, to move on and, and, and to look for other opportunities and options. In Arizona, I mean, listen, I, I totally get what you're saying. But when, you know, 25 percent of the voting machines go down in Maricopa County, okay, that simply invites, uh, I think, you know, people, Republicans. Absolutely. To, to, to speculate. Oh, and just, Tom, know. just so you know, I have railed against the vote counting system in Arizona and also California. It's an embarrassment. What happened yeah. out there is embarrassing. The person in charge of administrating the elections is the Secretary of State, who's now been given a promotion by the voters, and she's going to be the new governor. It's an absolute mess out there, and I understand why people are unhappy with it and mistrustful of it, but I also don't know if just, like, you know, railing against it actually accomplishes anything you've got to adjust and win i listen i agree with that i'm just saying in the case of arizona in the case of carrie lake perhaps in particular because that race was so close i think she has you know she has a claim to be in and to your point it's over okay it's not going to happen for her she's going to file lawsuits and we'll see how they work out but for the most part she's in the position of saying listen you know I was robbed in 2022, and, and we'll see where that leads her moving forward. If she tries to run again and she tries to make that part of her campaign, uh, we'll see how that works out. But I, um, certainly for folks in Arizona, and again, I, I was pretty close to this. My parents live in East Mesa. They yeah, were, we talked they about it. Polling yeah, exactly. So, um, and I think that you know, it just invites that kind of, uh, that kind of speculation, which, which does no good for, for anybody and certainly undermines the integrity of the system. Yep, I wish they had cleaned it up when Republicans controlled everything in that state. They didn't. Now it'll be a split government out there. So we'll see if any progress is made. Uh, if the Republicans get that trifecta again in Arizona, for goodness sakes, fix that system. It is as bad as anywhere else in the country right now. I think we probably agree on that. And with that, Tom Bevan, we got to run up on a break. Co-founder, president, realclearpolitics.com. Tom, appreciate it. Talk soon. All right. Thanks, Guy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
As we return to the Guy Benson Show, some sad news breaking yesterday from the entertainment world. This statement tweeted from the account of actress Kirstie Alley. Quote, to all our friends far and wide around the world, we are sad to inform you that our incredible, fierce, and loving mother has passed away after a battle with cancer, only recently discovered. She was surrounded by her closest family and fought with great strength, leaving us with a certainty of her never-ending joy of living and whatever adventures rather lie ahead. As iconic as she was on screen, she was an even more amazing mother and grandmother. We are grateful to the incredible team of doctors and nurses at the Moffitt Cancer Center for their care. Our mother's zest and passion for life, her children, grandchildren, and her many animals, not to mention her eternal joy of creating, were unparalleled and leave us inspired to live life to the fullest just as she did. We thank you for your love and prayers and ask that you respect our privacy at this difficult time. With love always, True and Lily Parker. So, Kirstie Alley, passing away from cancer at the age of 71, she was young. And she is just a beloved figure, an Emmy Award-winning actress, of course, most famous initially for her role in Cheers. It's a classic American sitcom. I know some people are talking about her politics after her passing, her religion. She was a Scientologist. I'm not getting into that. She meant a lot to a lot of people. She had fans all over the place. She was personal friends with one of my good friends, Zhang Toy, who is grieving that loss. And our thoughts go out to Kirstie Alley, her family, her friends. That actress, dead at 71. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a brand new hour underway from new york city it's the guy benson show GuyBensonShow.com, our website podcast free on demand every day thank you for listening you can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow had a rough day, as I mentioned last hour. It recovered some of the ground it had lost, but not all of it. Closing in the red, 350 points, ending at 33,596. With me now in studio, another member of the five. We had Jesse Waters to kick off our first hour. Now Dana Perino is with us, co-anchor of America's Newsroom and co-host of the five, best-selling author of multiple books, including <laughs> Everything Will Be Okay, now available in paperback. It is good to see Real you. Great to see you. As Welcome always. to New York. It is- I won't sing it for you, but the feeling and the passion of Taylor Swift is there. You're welcome to sing it if you'd like to. <laughs> no? No, I'm not singing you, it. She just gave me a look like, Never. let's not go there. Never let's not happening. go there. So here's a question for you that I think is an interesting one. You may or may not have seen this story because a lot of folks were sending it around. There's this new news outlet called Semaphore. Yeah. And they have a piece about how Ron DeSantis, the governor Mm -hmm. of Florida, Mm -hmm. is kind of building his own Mm -hmm. media universe Mm -hmm. and is – to a large extent, just ignoring the mainstream media and not really playing ball with them. And it's being kind of presented as a dangerous and worrisome thing. But I also think he might be on to something here. 
What do you make of this whole story? Well, I love this topic because I, I will give you my opinion about that story. And that, but I will add Biden's doing the same thing. And nobody's really written about that. Mm. OK, so um, this is interesting. The other day we were talking about how there are presidents who take advantage of new technologies and they use them to great advantage. And I w- let me just go back to FDR and the radio. Right, the radio address. Now he's Fireside talking directly chats. to you into your homes, okay? And that, and people felt like, oh, he gets me. He's my friend. You're in everyone's homes in the afternoon, and I'm sure that when you meet people, like, oh, my gosh, I listen to you every day, and they, they, they're like your friend, right? Yeah, they and, feel and like they know, they know you. you, which yeah. is part of the, I think, intimacy of radio right. in particular. But Radio. Let's then go to television. And John F. Kennedy, he figures it out. He uses television to great advantage. He knows he's a good-looking guy. You remember the debate, right, with Nixon sweating and John F. Kennedy looks great. And he uses t- uh, television. Ronald Reagan kind of perfects the television, right, and the, in terms of like with Michael Deaver who would design the look and feel of his events. Stagecraft. Beautiful. I was just at the Reagan National Defense Forum, and still to this day, their legacy is we do this really well, guys. It is beautiful out Fast there. Fast forward, 2008. And what did President Obama do in that campaign? He ran circles around John McCain on social media. Remember he announced his running mate by text? No, I don't remember that. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I'll add that to my little repertoire here. Uh, He also had things like cat lovers for Obama on Facebook. Can you spare $5 today if you're a cat lover for Obama? (laughs) And they started that small dollar fundraising and he just blew the doors off of it. Donald Trump, what does he do? He uses Twitter to great effect. He just goes straight past the media and right to everybody. So you always knew what he was thinking, for better or worse. And he was really, really effective use of social media in that way, not just for fundraising, but for communicating to people. And I think uh, what the semaphore piece about Ron DeSantis is describing for us could be what we see in the future, because it's not just Ron DeSantis doing this. Think about what the Biden administration has done. He hardly ever talks to the mainstream press. He'll say, oh, I answered three questions today on the South Lawn. It's not the same. He doesn't do press conferences. He can't really handle it that way. He did, if he does an interview with a mainstream media place, like a, let's say he did George Stephanopoulos, right? It's usually pretty a soft interview. It's not really that hard. But what did they, they find little pockets of, he did an interview with Now This. Now This is funded by dark money on the liberal side. But, no, but everybody thinks it might just be like this nice, innocuous news outlet. It's not. Oh, no. No, that's it's a left-wing not. thing. But nobody realizes that. You know that. But but if you're just scrolling through Twitter, you see something. Oh, he said this on Instagram. Here, here you have it. From now this, you think that might just be what it is. So to me, what Ron DeSantis is doing is a little bit like that. He's picking and choosing, and he's deciding what he has to do. There's no one who says that you have to do media. I would like for them to do more, and I actually think that it is – I don't think it's incumbent upon them. And the media will have to do what they have to do to try to get the story, whatever they can. I think it helps you if you're talking to more people. For example, when Ro Khanna comes on Fox News, he can get his message across pretty effectively. Bernie Sanders has been starting to put his op-eds on foxnews.com because he knows he needs a wider audience. And actually, there's some people who agree with him on some of the things. So, for example, like the rail strike. And this, though, however, because you're a student of communications and I am too, I think that that article was forecast for what's to come the thing is with DeSantis my understanding of it having met him and talked to him and then his team 
they view, as many Republicans do, the mainstream media as the opposition. And I think generally they are. You've got Republicans versus the media. The media are a bunch of Democrats. They were especially relentless with him. Mm-hmm. He answers their questions a lot. He does a lot of press mm-hmm. conferences mm-hmm. on a lot of different issues. Well, remember he, what 60 Minutes did to him. Oh, boy. And he eviscerated You'll never forget that. that. Nope. That, I think that was a formative moment for him. For yes, sure, I agree. On this. And also, you know, after the hurricane, he was answering questions all the time. He did the debate, which was moderated badly by a bunch of liberal journalists where it felt like a, a four-on-one situation. It was even worse in, in Rubio's debate down there. But, you know, he did that and did well. He will engage with mainstream media sometimes, mm-hmm. but he's not going to sort of march to their beat Also, at all. why should he do so right now? He's not announced for president. He just won the governor's office. He's got a lot on his plate. He's a very competent governor, obviously. On the strategy, obviously, worked. he won by almost 20 points, which yeah. is unheard of. So I don't think that if, if, if he does run for president, then maybe he'll adjust or something. I don't know, but... You think about President Trump actually likes talking to the press for the most part, I think. He likes the back and forth. He liked communicating with them, and he knew it was effective. Even if for some days the media might feel so overwhelmed, like how can we follow six storylines all at once? And they covered kind of ridiculous things rather than the substantive things, and that I think hurt the media's case later on. I mean that was a very close election in 2020, and I think that would really surprise the media. And Biden didn't do anything. He didn't do interviews, and Semaphore doesn't write about that. Yeah, no, I Semaphore think, didn't exist either, so they're new as well. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> I think that's a very interesting and good point. I actually quite like some of the Semaphore products, to be honest. They have a they have a thing called the flip side. Have you seen this? No. It's where they just compile they'll take an issue, let's call it let's go with the rail strike again, and they'll say, Here's what people on the right are saying and here's what people on the left are saying. All in one place. I find it very helpful. The flip side. Mm-hmm. Right, good to know. Quickly, Dana, I know you've heard this, but cut nineteen, this was the president earlier. Why go to a border state and not visit the border? Because there's a more important thing going on. They're going to invest billions of dollars in a new enterprise. Peter Ducey asking him, you're going to Arizona, you're going to a border state. Why not go see the border, which he has not done, even as vice president? He's been vice president and president for a decade combined, basically, has never gone down to see the border. There's a huge crisis, and his answer is there's more important stuff going on. He says there's higher priorities. I hope... Well, look, if he did talk to the media, he would have to answer this question rather than just being on the South Lawn. It is curious. I'm fair. I'm just confused. This is actually his job. There is nobody else in the federal government who is responsible except for the executive branch, and he is a commander in chief. He is the one responsible for border security, and he does not care. And I, one, I would just be so nervous every day that somebody got through that was going to cause harm. Well, there are they, there are Im- illegal immigrants crossing who are causing harm, mm-hmm. right? And I think why not go and talk to some of those ranchers and private property he owners want to. or the people in Yuma who are suffering? I, and he thinks it's not a priority. I think this will be a horrible stain on his legacy for the rest of his life. Dana and Perino, beyond. co-anchor, America's Newsroom, also the five five p.m. coming up in five. forty-five minutes. You got. A lot to get to, so we'll <laughs> let you go. Dana, it's great to see you. Thanks for doing this. I love I love having you here. Appreciate it. We'll see you again very soon. That's Dana Perino on The Guy Benson Show. Much more to get to. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I would like to make a point that I've made multiple times over the course of months on this show, but there's a new data point to fortify and solidify my argument. 
which is to use the verb employed by NBC News in their headline yesterday about this. The state of Georgia once again, quote, smashed an early voting record ahead of today's runoff election for the U.S. Senate. We'll get those results tonight. The outcome almost certainly tonight. We can talk about it a bit tomorrow. Regardless of who wins, once again, a record was set on early voting and turnout. So the timeline, just to remind you, is that after the mess of the 2020 election, in 2021, the Republicans in Georgia passed common sense, reasonable, sensible election reforms that were lied about incessantly by the Democrats. Stacey Abrams was the face of those lies, who went on to lose and lose big, richly deserved, but also joined in by a whole host of Democrats all across the country, including the President of the United States. Stacey Abrams called the new law Jim Crow 2.0, which is disgustingly racial and dishonest. Biden went further, saying it was worse than Jim Crow, worse than Jim Crow segregation. Because of the racist voter suppression that was being alleged, it was all a lie. We knew it was a lie at the time. We built that case on this show, sticking to the facts all along. In the subsequent primary elections, after the new law was implemented, there was record-setting turnout in a midterm election. Not even close. They blew it away. Then in the early vote for the general, same thing. Then in the overall turnout in the general, it was up again. It was up huge in 2018 and then up even more in 2022. And Stacey Abrams, who insisted that if people really came out and voted, she would win. She lost by 1.5 percentage points last time, never conceded, denied the election for years. Then more people turned out four years later in the rematch, and she lost by nearly eight points. She got waxed so thoroughly that even she had to admit that she lost, which is really saying something. And now, with the election continuing into today, another record being broken and being set after the supposed suppression law was put into place. It was always mendacious and demagogic and dishonest. And reality has now, in every conceivable way, debunked those lies. Part of the reason that I bring it up is to once again Shame Stacey Abrams, who's lost at the ballot box again, also lost in court, a thorough route in federal court recently. We talked about that. An Obama-appointed judge handing her, her organization, a giant L on every major claim they brought in court. Also to shame the president of the United States, who participated in this in an even more hyperbolic way than even Stacey Abrams did. Beneath his office and very much against the type of person he said he would be as president. Healing, consensus, bringing people together, he's not good at those things. He likes to talk about it occasionally when he's in a certain mood, and then the nasty, ugly, divisive side of Joe Biden comes out when he feels like he wants it to for political reasons. But I have a special residue of contempt for some of the organizations and corporations that caved to this left-wing, woke, lying mob about this law. 
Coca-Cola, which became Woca-Cola. They did what they did. They've at least sort of backtracked a little bit. Muttering a few things about finding common ground in the future, like a half retreat from that embarrassment. Delta Airlines, which I think deserves a ton of criticism, their top executives and CEO had been at the table and were supportive of the law until the wokes went crazy. And then they turned on a dime, cravenly, gutlessly, and just sang a completely different tune. They weren't ignorant. They actually knew better. They did it anyway, performatively, to try to appease that crowd. Prizing, keeping the mob at bay more than telling the truth. Or at least staying neutral. And then worst is Major League Baseball. Which went so far as to pull the All-Star game out of Atlanta last year, punishing the state of Georgia based on a giant lie. We had the governor, Brian Kemp, on the show. He said that he offered to speak directly. He had spoken directly with the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred. And he said, let me walk you through the details of this law. Let me explain to you what's in it, what isn't true, what they're distorting. And Manfred was not interested in the facts. He said, no, thank you, and then just pulled the plug on the All-Star game based on this giant lie. Major League Baseball remains headquartered in a state, New York, that has much more, quote-unquote, voting restriction than Georgia does. They have almost half the number of early voting days in New York that they have in Georgia. The very liberal voters of New York last year overwhelmingly rejected an expansion of so-called voting rights in ways that I think are irresponsible and misguided, and New Yorkers agreed, so I think those are good decisions that they made. But compared to Georgia, that should be called suppression. Of course, Joe Biden comes from a notorious, quote-unquote, suppression state in Georgia, in Delaware, having won multiple elections over many decades under that suppressive system using their own stupid, inaccurate standards. I did see that there's a group called Honest Elections that is at least trying to remind these people what they did, call them out, and hold them somewhat accountable. Honest Elections with a full-page print ad in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution calling on Coca-Cola to apologize for their lies. And they've also hired... This digital billboard, a mobile billboard that drives around on the back of a truck at the winter meetings in San Diego, California of Major League Baseball, demanding apologies for Major League Baseball for what they did, especially now that the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the outcomes. We've tested the lies and the lies have been debunked not only by the text of the law, but by the actual realities wrought from the law. And I just hope that Commissioner Manfred sees that billboard. He obviously doesn't want to talk or think about this ever again. He's been called out on it. George W. Bush trolled him to his face. You might recall on live television, that was good. He is visibly uncomfortable when it comes up, and he should be. And I hope he sees that truck. Maybe hoping for an admission and an apology is a pipe dream. I don't know. But some acknowledgement... I think is in order now that the lie has been thoroughly debunked by reality and the truth vindication for those of us who were right all along 
and shame, at least should be shame, for the people who perpetrated the lie and the people who went along with it lazily in a cowardly way. So you might be thinking, guy still hasn't let this go. Correct. I've not let it go. But I do feel pretty good that the truth is crystal clear. And we were on the right side of this one. Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are at the halfway point of this Tuesday edition of the Guy Benson Show from New York City the rest of the week. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. Well, we really don't shy away from talking about difficult topics on this program. And this next one certainly falls into that category. Over the last year, we have spoken quite a lot about abortion for obvious reasons with the Supreme Court decision and that issue becoming a significant factor and debate point in the midterm elections. There's another issue within sort of the respect for life set that often gets less attention, and that is physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. Not exactly... An upbeat, cheerful topic today, but one that is getting attention because of a few new developments north of the border in Canada. If you listen to the show regularly, you know that I am pro-life. I am maybe not as dogmatically 100% pro-life as some, but I definitely consider myself on the pro-life end of the spectrum on abortion. On this other issue set that's related, where people say they are pro-life from conception to natural death, I think it's a little bit trickier because in the case of abortion, it is the taking and ending of an innocent human life that has no say in the matter. Whereas in the case of physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia, the person whose life is ending at least has a say in that decision. So there's some personal autonomy there, personal agency there. So that might shift some of the moral and ethical calculus at least a little bit. I still think there is a case against the government or society sanctioning the taking of one's own life. I also think under particularly dire and difficult circumstances, it's complicated. It can be difficult to walk through some of these questions. Like if someone is terminally ill with a very serious disease, with no chance of a cure or recovery, according to the doctors, and is in persistent, consistent, excruciating pain, I think it is hard to tell that person that they must go on living. But it's also really hard for me to say, oh, yes, by all means, end your life. I think this is a gray area that is difficult for a lot of people and something that we don't really talk or think about very much, especially in this country where it's legal in some places, but it has not gotten to the extent in most of the country, the Pacific Northwest is one outlier area and region, it has not gotten to the point where it has in a number of other places, like the trailblazing capital 
of euthanasia, the Netherlands. And some of the headlines and developments coming out of Canada. I think the strongest argument against loosening laws or permitting for the first time physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia is the slippery slope argument, which is very often dismissed as a logical fallacy. Right, You're not arguing against A, B, or C on the merits. You're saying if we accept or allow A, B, and C, then X, Y, and Z might happen down the line, and that's bad. So you're not necessarily tackling the question right in front of you. You are more addressing something undesirable or bad that might flow from A, B, and C. And the stronger argument is X, Y, and Z. And you might say, actually, that's not a very strong argument at all. And sometimes slippery slope arguments, I will concede, are weak, are not strong forms of argumentation. But on the issue of assisted suicide, euthanasia, the slippery slope has been repeatedly, and I would say disturbingly, confirmed as real. Very real and extremely slippery. There was a story a few years back in the UK Guardian looking at the Netherlands and the Dutch. I'll just quote to you from part of the story, and I've written about this at townhall.com today as well if you want to go read and follow some of these links. Quote, everyone in the Netherlands seems to have known someone who has been euthanized. And the kind of choreographed farewell is far from unusual, they had described one such anecdote in the story. Certainly the idea that we humans have a variety of deaths to choose from is more familiar in the Netherlands than anywhere else. But the long-term consequences of this idea are only just becoming discernible. Euthanasia has been legal in the Netherlands for long enough to show what can happen after the practice beds in. As the world's pioneer... The Netherlands has also discovered that although legalizing euthanasia might resolve one ethical conundrum, it opens a can of others. Most importantly, where the limits of the practice should be drawn. In the past few years, a small but influential group of academics and jurists have raised the alarm over what is generally referred to, a little archly, as the slippery slope. The idea that a measure introduced to provide relief to late-stage cancer patients has expanded to include people who might otherwise live for many years, from sufferers of diseases such as muscular dystrophy to sexagenarians with dementia and even mentally ill young people. There was a story in CBS News about the Netherlands as well. I'll quote from CBS now. Papers published recently by the Dutch Euthanasia Commission reportedly revealed that a woman in her 20s was allowed to go ahead with assisted suicide based on psychiatrists' decisions that her mental health condition was, quote, insufferable and was therefore illegal to deny her life-ending drugs. The woman who has not been identified was sexually abused between the ages of 5 and 15. The UK Telegraph reports that the young woman was not an isolated case, and in fact the rate of approved suicides assisted suicides in the Netherlands for patients suffering from mental disorders has increased dramatically since the procedure was first made legal. For instance, in 2010, only two people were granted euthanasia due to insufferable mental conditions. 
By 2015, five years later, the number rose to 56. This is one example of a woman in her 20s, not physically ill, someone who had been subjected to something truly awful, sustained sexual abuse for years as a child, horrific. She had PTSD. She had lots of mental and emotional baggage stemming from that, and who could possibly blame her? Rather than helping her work through those issues and try to forge forward in her life based not on extremely painful, physical, incurable cancer or something like that, under Dutch law, she was granted an assisted suicide because of her mental health issues and suffering. If you don't see the slope slipping in the Netherlands, I don't know what to tell you. Which brings us to Canada. Ross Douthat wrote a piece this week in the New York Times, his column entitled, What Euthanasia Has Done to Canada, and it's grim. He writes, in recent years, Canada has established some of the world's most permissive euthanasia laws, allowing adults to seek either physician-assisted suicide or direct euthanasia for many different forms of serious suffering, not just terminal disease. And by the way, just as a point of clarification, my understanding is euthanasia is where you consent and the doctor or medical professional effectively kills you using a cocktail of deadly drugs, whereas assisted suicide is they prescribe the drugs, they provide this cocktail of drugs, but you ultimately administer it yourself. The result, of course, is the same. Douthat writes this, in 2021, over 10,000 people ended their lives this way, just over 3% of all deaths in Canada. 10,000 in Canada last year alone. A further expansion allowing euthanasia for mental health conditions will go into effect in March 2023. Permitting euthanasia for quote-unquote mature minors is also being considered. Children. Children. He says it is barbaric to establish a bureaucratic system that offers death as a reliable treatment for suffering and enlists the healing profession in delivering this quote-unquote cure. And while there may be worse evils ahead, this isn't a slippery slope argument. When 10,000 people are availing themselves of your euthanasia system every year, you have already entered the dystopia. Indeed, according to a lengthy report by Maria Chang of the Associated Press, the Canadian system shows exactly the corrosive features that critics of assisted suicide anticipated. From healthcare workers allegedly suggesting euthanasia to their patients to sick people seeking a quietus for reasons linked to financial stress. So medical professionals suggesting death to patients and people seeking out this quote-unquote solution because of financial burdens, not incurable, insufferable physical pain. Douthat writes, in these issues, you can see the dark ways euthanasia interacts with other late modern problems. The isolation imposed by family breakdown, the spread of chronic illness and depression, the pressure on aging, low birth rate societies who need to cut their health care costs. We'll return to that in a moment. He mentioned that Associated Press investigative report that came out just in August, this past August. 
Here's one vignette, one anecdote from that story. Alan Nichols had a history of depression and other medical issues, but none were life-threatening. When the 61-year-old Canadian was hospitalized in June of 2019 over fears he might be suicidal, he asked his brother to, quote, bust him out as soon as possible, i.e. get out of the hospital. Within a month, Nichols had submitted a request to be euthanized and was killed, despite concerns raised by his family and a nurse practitioner. His application for euthanasia listed only one health condition as the reason for his request to die, hearing loss. Hearing loss. Nichols' family reported the case to the police and health authorities, arguing that he lacked the capacity to understand the process and was not suffering unbearably. Among the requirements are euthanasia in Canada. They say he was not taking needed medication, he wasn't using the cochlear implant that helped him hear, and that hospital staffers, they said, improperly helped him request euthanasia. Quote, Allen was basically put to death, his brother Gary said. Disability experts say the story is not unique in Canada, which arguably has the world's most permissive euthanasia rules, allowing people with serious disabilities to choose to be killed in the absence of any other medical issue. Equally troubling, advocates say, are the instances in which people have sought to be killed because they weren't getting adequate government support to live. Canada is set to expand euthanasia access next year. But these advocates say the system warrants further scrutiny now. It certainly does, which will become even more plain and obvious after you hear this audio out of Canada. This is fresh. I'm going to play for you next on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are tackling the heavy and somber issue of assisted suicide and euthanasia and talking about where those things are permitted, how excesses and abuses tend to arise. And here is another example. This is audio for you from Global National News profiling a woman who is in her 50s, her early 50s. She was paralyzed Decades ago, she was a Paralympian for Canada. They have a government-run health care system up there, always trying to cut costs, always long waiting lists. She was begging the government for one of those wheelchair lift stair machines so she could more easily navigate her house and go up and down stairs. You've seen them in TV commercials. It's like that little mini elevator thing that they create, almost like an escalator on your home stairs. That's what she was asking for. Instead, she was offered by the government death. Cut 21. For Christine Gautier, the fight to get a wheelchair lift in her home has been an uphill battle. I have to crawl down the stairs on my, on my butt with the wheelchair in front of me to be able to access my, my house. While pleading her case to a Veterans Affairs case manager over the phone in 2019, she was told something that would leave her feeling shocked. If things are so hard at this point and uh, you, you just can't keep going on, then you, you know we can assist you with uh, aid to die. And she's not the only one. She testified recently before Parliament that she said, these are my requests of the government health care system. She wanted help from the government to make her life easier. And the suggestion she got back from the government was to end the life. 
52 years old, disabled, but not even close to terminally ill. That's the feedback that she got. And, of course, members of parliament were horrified and angry and outraged. Justin Trudeau said this was completely unacceptable, but also didn't back away from the government's planned expansion of euthanasia to include mental health reasons with the potential for children being added among the ranks who can choose death for a whole variety of reasons. And, I mean, it is truly a dystopia when you have a government that controls the entire healthcare system, where they have to ration care all the time, where they start to see people as expendable. They've devalued the value of life. They just have. That's undeniable. And once you've taken that grave step in one direction, the steps keep coming, as we are seeing in Canada. When I talk about the slippery slope being pretty rapid, Canada first legalized some assisted suicide in 2016, not long ago. And here they are already at the forefront, I would say, of a very dark future on these issues, on this ethical question. And rather than pulling back from the brink and saying we may have overreached here and overstepped, they are planning to go full bore ahead, deeper into the darkness. The slippery slope in this case is horrifying and it is real. And if we're going to have conversations, tough, serious conversations about issues like assisted suicide and euthanasia, We can't just avert our eyes and pretend that these things aren't happening and aren't, I would argue, inevitable once societies and governments go down this path, as we have seen over and over again in Oregon, in Washington State, in Canada, in Europe and elsewhere. Valuing life matters for a variety of reasons. And sending the signal that for a whole host of reasons, just ending your life is probably best beyond the area, sort of the realm where most people are at least sympathetic to assisted suicide, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and a very sad, serious, I would say awful situation. So I tried to have a mature conversation about it here with you. And I wanted to raise this for you because it is a big, active, current issue up north with our neighbors. Cautionary tales all over the place. The Guy Benson Show final hour coming up next. It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast is always free, always on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter and Instagram. That's the show account. My personal account at Guy P. Benson on both of those same platforms. And this hour, as always, sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, 150 cans, 
we had at our Christmas party, and they were gone within hours. The bartender marveling at it. He said, this stuff is really popular. People came up to me, do you have a secret stash? Is there any more? I said, it's gone. We drank all of it. It is delicious. Always drink responsibly, which most of us did at the party. 21 plus only, thelongdrink.com. With us now is Charles C.W. Cook, senior writer at National Review. You can check out his popular podcast, the Charles C.W. Cook Podcast. And Charles, it's good to have you here. Thank you for having me. I think it was telling you, introduced me after talking about drinking. <laughs> well, I mean, you are an Englishman, and your people <laughs> are known for imbibing we often are. rather heavily. And actually, on that point, I do want to ask you this. You are a soccer fan. I know it is sort of yeah. bred into you. I am not really much of a soccer fan. I rooted for USA until they were out, and I'll just sort of file away the sport for the next four years at least, uh, assuming USA gets back. Then I'll kind of pay attention again four years from now. Based on your Twitter feed, you are much more interested than I am. What is your rooting hierarchy when it comes to global soccer, and how do you pick when it's not one of your countries, how do you pick the team to support in any given match? Well, I unless it's the USA or England, I go for the underdog uh, if it's not France. I spent a lot of time <laughs> in France as a kid. Well, I suppose that makes me a bad Englishman. I'm supposed to hate France, but I, I, I can't. I spend so much time there and speak the language. So uh, after the USA and England, I support France. And then, of course, I have teams that I hope will go out and suffer, namely Germany. Ah, okay. So I initially misunderstood. I assumed, based on your heritage, that you root for the underdog in every circumstance unless the underdog is France, for whom you root under no circumstances, which is kind of like me in college football and Notre Dame, for example. But in fact, you have a strange soft spot for the French, or at least for the country, and that's duly noted, and that will be marked in your permanent record, Charles. I do want to ask you about a few of the pieces you've written at National Review over the last couple of days. Look, I could, if I wanted to, rant and rave for three hours on the air about the latest things former President Donald Trump is saying and putting on social media and suggesting or at least flirting with. I choose not to because I don't really want to talk about him all the time. I don't want to give it a ton of oxygen. There's a lot of other interesting things happening in the world. There are going to be other interesting people running for president. There are certain things when he does and says various, I would say, deranged things or statements that I think it almost requires some of us with platforms to talk about it and to address it. I've done so briefly this week. You've done so less briefly in your writing. Let's start with your piece about Trump's musing about terminating the Constitution or suspending, I guess, parts of the Constitution in order to either install him as president because he believes that he was the rightful winner of the 2020 election, which he was not, or to have a redo election. And he said there was such egregious abuse and malfeasance and fraud two years ago that terminating or stopping or ignoring certain rules, including those within the Constitution, is acceptable under the circumstances. When we were talking about this on our show planning call a few days ago, a couple of folks were laughing because it's just such a preposterous thing 
that he wrote. And, you know, it's so much in capital letters. It just reads as a crazy person ranting away. But you basically make the case that we shouldn't laugh it off. We should take it seriously. We should tackle it on the merits. And I would love for you to do so. I would laugh at this if it were a guy at the bar. But he's the only declared candidate for 2024 in either party. He's been president before. He could be president again. I think that's unlikely. But I don't think that changes much. He, by declaring for president, has invited us to judge him prospectively. And starting off by saying that he would suspend or ignore or terminate or sidestep certain portions of the U.S. Constitution, the Constitution that would confer any power he had on him in the first place, is appalling. I think that we should expect more than that from our elected officials and our wannabe elected officials. And of course, I've had people writing to me saying, why don't you talk about the Democrats. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I've been on your show recently over and over to talk about the Democrats and especially Joe Biden and his subversion of the Constitution. I don't think it's any different when I hear it from Donald Trump. And I think it is alarming coming from Trump because when he was president last time and he lost the 2020 election, he spent his final days in office not just lying about the election and its result but advancing a ludicrous interpretation of the 12th Amendment and urging the vice president of the United States to become an elections dictator and reinstall him. So this is not an entirely hypothetical question. And of course, he probably can't do it. That didn't work, that attempt, thankfully. I have a great deal of faith in our Constitution. But I also don't want to put people in positions of responsibility if they tell me ahead of time that they're going to subvert the rules that they promise to uphold. So I think it really does matter. I don't particularly like talking about Trump, too, but he's a presidential candidate. He said these things. They deserve remark. He swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. He did, in a lot of ways, a very good job as president, in my opinion, while he was president. After he lost, he went really off the deep end and betrayed that oath, in my opinion. And we saw what happened on January the 6th. He was more than happy to indulge or encourage outright tyrannical, authoritarian, unconstitutional conduct in order to remain in power. And for that reason, Charles, to your point, when he is just pushing out some stuff that is extremely far-fetched and, and ludicrous on its face, you can't just completely dismiss it because he has demonstrated an appetite for this stuff and to act on those appetites as well. I would invite people whose temptation is to downplay it or rewrite it to ask themselves honestly how they would react if President Obama, who can't be president again, who is term limited, said the same thing. I would invite them to ask themselves how they would react if President Biden said it. 
if Bill Clinton said it, or if anyone who had some chance of being president after President Biden said it. Not just Kamala Harris, let's say Gavin Newsom or Pete Buttigieg or anyone. I think we know the answer, and it would be totally reasonable to say, well, hang on a minute, there's somebody who should not be near power. We have enough problems in this country with elected officials circumventing the U.S. Constitution already. But if you announce ahead of time an intention to do it, I think we should take that seriously. As you say, we have an oath of office. Funnily enough, I actually took that oath of office when I became a citizen. It's not just for politicians. And the least we can expect is that they stick to it. And, of course, it's even more pernicious in this case because we're not talking here about a difference of opinion. We're not talking here about a debate over the interstate commerce clause. We're not talking about tricky questions such as to what extent criminal or civil lawsuits can be um, enjoined by the First Amendment. We're talking about the abolition of the entire system. If the Constitution does not prescribe the means by which we elect our officials, if the whole thing is completely open, as Donald Trump seems to think that it is, interminably, that right now, more than you know, a year and a half into Joe Biden's presidency, we could just say, actually, no, you're not president, someone else is. We're abolishing the U.S. Constitution, guy. Yeah, and it's not about yeah. circumvention or subversion and debate. This, what he's talking about, is a direct frontal assault on the Constitution and our system itself. And to the point that you made a moment ago, Charles, I think you and I would be tearing our hair out, running around screaming ourselves hoarse, and rightfully so, and this audience would be overwhelmingly, if not unanimously, with us. If Joe Biden loses in 2024, let's say he runs again, loses in 24, decides that he didn't really lose because of voter suppression in Georgia and some of the other places where he doesn't like the laws, and he's been a real demagogue about that stuff. So he pressures successfully his vice president, Kamala Harris, to just wave a wand that doesn't exist and reinstall him. That would be a full-blown constitutional crisis, and we wouldn't beat around the bush about that. And that is what Trump is talking about here. So that's the constitutional side of it. You wrote another piece that's more on the political side of it, where you're asking just broadly to center-right, conservative, Republican-leaning voters, aren't you tired of this stuff? And I think this stuff can be broadly defined, at least in my mind, as the endless drama, whether it's these types of unhinged pronouncements on social media or this surreal dinner he had with outright bigots the other night. That's just two examples from the last week and a half, I think, let alone everything dating back to November of 2020, for instance. It's just endless. And at some point, voters have to make decisions. Republican voters have to make decisions about whether or not they're going to continue to go through this cycle of ignoring it or defending it and then sort of changing once Trump changes his story? Do they want to keep remaining stuck in that cycle and likely lose even more elections than have already been lost? Or do they want to turn the page and change 
their calculus or change the way they think about who should be leading the party. And that was the more recent piece you wrote at the corner at nationalreview.com, just an appeal to the political instincts of a lot of people who I think many of them for a long time have defended Trump, voted for him twice enthusiastically. I hope and I do suspect there is some movement on that front, but I want to let you make that case again here. I want to win and advance the ball. Unlike a lot of the people who dislike Trump or you will read criticizing Trump, I am still as much of a conservative, maybe even more of a conservative, than I was before Trump came along. I'm a constitutional conservative. I'm a Second Amendment guy. I would, if I could, uproot a great amount of the New Deal. I have not changed in that regard. And I find it deeply frustrating to watch this psychodrama around Donald Trump that is achieving absolutely nothing except putting off independents and many Republican voters. There was nothing wrong with defending Donald Trump when he did something good. Sometimes Trump was treated deeply unfairly, and sometimes the arrows and opprobrium that were lobbed his way were because he was doing something conservative. He got a lot of grief, for example, when he pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords. Fine with me. That was worth it. He got a lot of grief when he nominated Amy Coney Barrett towards the end of uh, his terms before the election. Fine with me. That's it. But what he's doing, what he said on Truth Social that we just discussed, his dinner with anti-Semites and kooks, this is not helping anything. He's not advancing the ball. And I just wonder at what point voters who care about growing the Republican Party, growing the conservative coalition, getting conservative policy victories through, adding to the Supreme Court and the lower court. How about just beating the Democrats? How about just beating the Democrats in winnable elections? Well, that too. But of course, you want to beat the Democrats, not just to beat the Democrats. And this is one of the criticisms, of course, that Trump advanced that was true which is sometimes Republicans were so obsessed with beating the Democrats that they didn't actually use their power to change policy. Now, he wasn't perfect on that either, but that's a fair criticism. Sometimes that was true. But what on earth is what he's been doing recently, teaming? Going after Ron DeSantis, a successful governor in Florida, trying to get rid of Brian Kemp, a successful conservative governor in Georgia who won by eight points, picking candidates across the country who lost lost badly, lost to embarrassing figures like John Fetterman, having dinner with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West, as I mentioned, which is a disgrace, uh, is an, an appalling uh, dereliction of duty for a former president who is supposed to represent everyone. So, you know, I, I'm tired of it. And I wonder at what point people are going to say just enough with the psychodrama that, that's getting us nothing yeah. um, and actually probably losing... Um, adherence um, to right-leaning politics in America. Well, you are not alone, and I think your ranks are growing. Charles C.W. Cook, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Charles, up on a break. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. We will step aside and come right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. 
And it is particularly a wonderful time of year for me and extra happy in this happy hour because if you didn't catch it earlier on my social media feeds, I did have the pleasure today of announcing that I'm thrilled that I have just inked a new multi-year contract here at Fox News. And that will keep me here at the network through the next presidential election, 2024, and then also beyond. And it's kind of hard to believe, but next year, 2023, will mark 10 years on the air for me here at Fox. I don't know where the time has gone. I said, I guess time flies. It's true when you're having fun and you're working with amazing, great colleagues on a daily basis. I just want to say how grateful I am to everyone who helped make this deal possible and make it happen here at Fox, my agents and representatives at United Talent Agency, my family, my friends who are always so supportive, and most importantly, this audience. Broadly at Fox and specifically to this show as we continue to grow together, I am so grateful and thankful. We wouldn't literally be here doing this without you, and we hope that we will continue this relationship through agreement and disagreement for many years to come. From the bottom of my heart, I really do appreciate it. And now let's get back to work after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. The happy hour continues here on The Guy Benson Show from New York City. Thanks for being here, GuyBensonShow.com. To start today's program right at the very top, here in studio, we welcome back Jesse Waters, co-host of The Five, host of Jesse Waters' Prime Time on Fox News Channel. Fun conversation, as is typical with Jesse. Here's part of it. On a political topic I do want to ask you about, this is a little bit of breaking news today, getting some attention. Our colleague Peter Ducey, uh, speaking of a white gentleman with good hair, he asked a question of the president who's going to Arizona today for an event. Are yeah. you going to go to the border while you're there? Here's the answer from the president in Cut 19. Why go to a border state and not visit the border? Because there's a more important thing going on. They're going to invest billions of dollars in a new enterprise. More important things going on. Points for accuracy, at least in his own mind. This is what he believes. He does not believe that the border crisis really matters or is important. And he's just... Flaunting it, basically. This tells me that for the rest of the Biden presidency, he's not going to try to fix problems. He's admitting that he really doesn't want to fix the problem because in order to fix the problem, you got to lay eyes on the problem. And if it's basically the same distance from where he's going in Arizona to the border as it is from D.C. to Delaware, you'd think he might be able to maybe hop, skip and a jump. You're down at the border. Lay your eyes on the situation. And then at least you don't have Corinne Jean-Pierre lying to us and telling us that he's been to the border. At least you can say I've been to the border and you don't have to go in Texas. You don't have to go through that rigmarole where everybody hates you and the governor hates you. You know, it's a purple state, Arizona. Go down, check it out and get out of there and say you're going to work with the Republicans and Democrats to fix it. Put on the aviator glasses, nod. Yeah. Say a few words of concern. Right. And then pretend to care. But he's not even pretending. Not even pretending. And that tells me that he's given up and that we're never going to get a solution. And that's just not what presidents are there for. you got to fix the problems. You can't make the problem worse. Very quickly, I saw a headline, Jesse, that apparently one of Elon Musk's companies is now under federal investigation. And just the cynic inside me wonders, is that a coincidence? So what's he under investigation for, experimenting on animals? Something like that. Right. So we looked into Fauci. I mean, he makes monkeys – be waterboarded for these vaccines and it's not pretty what he's doing i probably shouldn't even be talking about it so that's okay but all of a sudden you're going to get elon on an animal rights beef 
That sounds a little rinky-dink to yeah, me. A little politics, perhaps. Yeah, a play. little bit. Uh, Jesse, I know you have not one but two shows to go prepare for, so we do appreciate your time. It's always good to see you. Anything big coming up tonight that we should be watching for? Well, we're going to be covering the border visit, and the Washington Post just suggested that Shark Week is racist. So we're going to be covering that. We have the guy wow. who was working at the Wuhan lab who wrote a book that says we probably did fund this thing. And then we have Eric Schmidt, the AG in Missouri, who deposed Fauci, says he couldn't remember a thing over the last two years. said, I don't remember about 16 dozen times. So big show tonight at 7 o'clock. Now the Shark Week revelation makes sense because the most famous shark is the great white shark. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Please steal it. My full interview with Jesse Waters. Our Fox News colleague available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, you can catch the whole podcast, the show from start to finish, on demand for free every day, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, The Spill, part two, our true crime series continues. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. Christmas time here on the Guy Benson Show. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every single day on demand. No charge to you. Up here in New York for the rest of the week. Lots of TV duties ahead. Gutfeld, America's Newsroom, America Reports, Kudlow, Kennedy, Martha McCallum, all on the calendar between now and Friday. So we will try to keep you posted on those various appearances as the week unfolds. More importantly, we have to get back to a topic that we broached yesterday in an extra special extended home stretch where we have turned the Guy Benson show into a true crime, truth-seeking exercise. In case you missed part one of The Spill yesterday, here's part of what you missed. This holiday season, one Christmas party was changed forever. When I thought we were in the clear, boom, a big red stain on a very strange portion of one of our couches. Many suspects, one witness. There were multiple spilling of the wine by a certain someone. This is a prepaid call from Christmas Cubby, an inmate at the county correctional facility. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Who can you believe from the team that brought you sloshing around the Christmas tree? A Guy Benson Show original, The Spill. So good. Props to Dan, our engineer, for putting that together. Christine being in county lockup for this crime is my favorite part by far. It's so good. I sent that last night to some friends. People were dying. So I sent the link of yesterday's home stretch to a lot of people who were at the party. Adam, my husband, put it on his social media as well. We have gotten a huge amount of feedback from people who were there, people who were at the party. I will tell you that I've heard from producer Christine badgering me for updates. I have, of course, stonewalled and stiff-armed those requests because we will not comment on the progress of an ongoing investigation. Wouldn't be prudent. Also, I did personally witness witness tampering. Producer Christine making threats of Quiet Wyatt, who was one of the witnesses to this whole situation. 
having previously threatened him, I believe, last week, suggesting that if he told me something unrelated to this particular crime, the red wine spill on our white couch at the Christmas party, this was something else, if he told me something, he would end up where Carousel did, at a garbage dump in Staten Island, dead. As we all know, Christine was responsible for that, even as a child, which is kind of blood-curdling. So Christine is in detention right now as the prime suspect. I'm not sure if she's been charged yet with this felony. This late-night wine spill on our couch at this party, following a series of other spills involving wine over the course of the evening that we addressed yesterday, I will give you a few updates because my investigations continued last night and also today. More text messages, more DMs on social media from friends who were there, people who thought they saw something. And this is very much a see something, say something scenario. Like my messages are open if you have information that could lead to the conviction of the person responsible for this. My next door neighbor in fact, tantalizingly, having listened to the entire home stretch yesterday, texted Adam and me saying that he has very important information about what happened, but will not divulge that information because, effectively, snitches get stitches. Apparently, he knows what happened to Carousel. He doesn't want to end up where she ended up. So there is someone who lives right near me, who knows I think what happened, but won't say out of fear, out of fear, which gives you a sense, I think, of how ruthless the offender must be. I also learned something very interesting because on our show planning call earlier, I guess Christine was able to join from lockup. She said that she might not ever again come to one of our Christmas parties. She might boycott the Christmas parties from now on because of all of these accusations. She said to me that I'm supposed to be her best friend, and yet I'm treating her at best as a person of interest, if not the prime suspect in this matter. And I said, well, am I really your best friend? Because I received yet another note from another attendee at the party who said that Christine told her that she was now her new best friend at the party. And Christine said, in fact, that did happen, but she does not remember the name, identity, or even really the appearance of that person. But she did remember making a new best friend. So, Christine, would you like to comment on any of this so far, including this somewhat mysterious new best friend of yours? I just remember she was just a blast. And I really would like, if now that I know that you know who it is, to give me her information because we decided that we were going to be best friends that night and I would like to start the relationship. But shouldn't I give her instead one of the business cards that Bobby had printed up where you do things drunkenly and then he hands people a business card saying all of the plans and promises are null and void because my wife won't remember this? I feel like that's what probably needs to go to this young woman. But I didn't, I made a lifetime commitment. Wow. I didn't just make a plan. And also, I have to tell you, I had brought one of those cards with me because I brought a bottle of champagne as a, a great guest. 
that I am. And I was planning on putting that, taping it to the box, and I completely forgot. You forgot about it. Or did you have to give it out earlier in the night to the other best friends that you made in your Uber, at the restaurant? Apparently you were (laughs) uh, really a gal out on the town before the party. You know, mama needed to let loose. (laughs) Mm, mama, Mama did. I do want to reveal something. This is one of those true crime reveals. A little twist and turn. The young woman that you made new best friends with on Saturday night in her messages to me did speak highly of you, did say that she enjoyed her time chatting with you immensely, does want to be in touch, but also leveled an accusation. Guess who else you spilled on on Saturday night? Her? Yes, you did. That's that's very possible. She was wearing red, so she said it wasn't too bad, but you spilled red wine on her. So I believe this is now the fourth documented spill that you personally are responsible for. However, with that being said, those were all misdemeanors. The point of this investigation is is to bring to justice the person responsible for the felony of the huge spill on the couch cushion. And Christine, I must inform you that I am officially clearing you of this crime. I knew it! (laughs) I've never been so happy. (laughs) You are not guilty. And part of the reason I know that you're not guilty, tragically actually, is that your alibi is basically the same as my husband's, which is when the spill happened, you were already gone. And I got a screenshot of your Uber with a timestamp of when we poured you into that car and sent you on your way. It was based on our timeline that we have put together extensively and very thoroughly here. It was before the felony occurred. So guilty on multiple misdemeanor charges of spillage. But not on this one. And therefore, number one, Christine, you're off the hook for the felony. And then secondly, this is now officially an unsolved mystery. But I do want to say this. Someone is out there who did this. And I would like to appeal directly to the offender. You know who you are. You know that you did this. You know that you had a nice time at the party, things got out of control, and you did something that you didn't mean to do. I need you to turn yourself in. I need you to confess. I will let you know. I will have everyone know that we very quickly, thanks to the fast action of a number of our partygoers, got the cushion cover off the couch, into the washing machine, since dried, and it looks Good as new. The stain is gone. This is not a permanent, does not have to be a permanent stain on your record. And I'm allowing a brief period of amnesty. If you would like to come and confess, all will be forgiven, but you need to come forward because at some point, someone saw something and we will find out and there will be consequences unless you come to us first. Privately, text message, DM, your choice. But the clock starts now. This unsolved mystery needs to be solved, preferably by you. If not, we will continue down this path 
pursuing this mission until justice is done. And with that, Christine, I would love to get your reaction to your vindication. As have- as we have now sent someone to county jail to come release you, we've we've now told the relevant local authorities that they got the wrong cookie. Well, I just would like to thank my fellow inmates who now are all my new besties. Um, I decided to have my own holiday party with those ladies because they were defending me the entire time. What is this, like Orange is the New Black season eight? <laughs> Could you imagine? I, I feel like I would do well in prison. I'm not even joking here. I feel like I actually would do well in prison. What do you think? I, I guess that's a whole other topic. That is a very different topic, and I don't necessarily agree, but maybe we can all find out. Nope, nope, like nope. We could all get a little respite. Bobby could get a breather. You get three square meals a day. You know, I mean, it's it's something to consider. But anyway, go on. Uh, I need the contact of my new best friend because, hey, A, I got to apologize. She was wearing a beautiful, I remember, it was like a red velvet outfit. It was mm-hmm. really, it's really It's all coming nice. back to you now. Yeah, it's all. And here's the thing. This is what I want to do. A, your neighbor, love that person that they would not even snitch even if they know. So love that. But here's the one thing. I'm going to defend the spiller because guess what, guy? The spiller may not know they're the spiller. Uh, Do you get what I mean? Yeah, I do, but I think they know. I think if you spill probably a full glass of red wine on a white couch, you know that that happened. You remembered at least half of your spills. You forgot about one of them completely. You misremembered another one. I've now reminded you of yet another one, which you're now, I guess, suddenly recalling. I mean, of course you're going to defend a spiller because you yourself are a serial spiller, as it turns out. Just not the one that this true crime mystery is about. Right. And I'm going to leave you with this. If you only had vodka there, none of this would have been a problem. Well, I'm going to tell you this, and now I'll leave you with this. Because of what happened, and also some other red wine stains on another rug on our main floor, Adam and I are having a very serious conversation now about ceasing all service of red wine at future parties. I think it's a good idea. White wine, bubbly, clear liquors, that's it. No red wine. I don't know. I like red wine so much, especially around Christmas time. I'm not sure I'm pulling the trigger, but we're at least thinking about it because we've had back-to-back incidents, multiple incidents. Over the last two years. So it's something that is now under consideration. Are you going to continue following through with this threat to never come again to a Christmas party? Or are you back I, in the fall? I, I think that I'm actually going to have my own Christmas holiday party on the same day. That could solve a lot of problems, actually. <laughs> Can I get that in writing? Wyatt and Dan, you make your choice. You oh, make I, your choice now. I think that's an easy choice. I think that's a very easy choice, unless they're scared of someone who has been supposedly vindicated, allegedly innocent, but ruthless and potentially combustible, nevertheless. I feel now, so good right now. I feel so good right now of something I knew. Now I know how I know how innocent people feel when they're wrongly convicted. It is a horrible feeling. Well, you were just wrongly accused, I think understandably and plausibly accused in this case, but it turns out wrongly accused of this. The search goes on, but don't let this feeling sink in too much because later in the week we are going to discuss 
other elements of your evening that have not been talked about yet on the air. I know Wyatt is very eager to do that, and we will, but not tonight because we are out of time. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place, on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Merry Christmas. Have a great night. And Christine, enjoy your newfound freedom. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.